Well, in October 1946, C.S. Lewis published a little essay entitled, Talking About Bicycles. Doesn't that just sound riveting? Talking About Bicycles. Doesn't that just make you want to read it? Bad title. Amazing little essay. In it, Lewis said that when a child is learning how to ride a bike, he or she will go through four stages. The first stage is unenchanted. Lewis writes, quote, I can remember a time in early childhood when a bicycle meant nothing to me. It was just part of the huge, meaningless background of grown-up gadgets. Shortly, though, the child sees someone riding a bike, maybe jumping a bike, and the child moves to a second stage, enchanted. I want to ride a bike. All I can think about is riding a bike. But after a couple failed attempts and scuffed knees, the child quickly moves to a third stage, disenchanted. The pedals are heavy. It feels like I'm always going up uphill. I no longer want to ride my bike. Lewis's point in the essay is that if the child pushes through disenchantment, soon the child will get good at riding the bike. Soon the child will feel wind on their face, and he or she will move into the final stage, re-enchantment, which, as Lewis argues, doesn't only recover enchantment, it increases it to a whole new level. Now, of course, this essay isn't about riding bicycles. It's about love and life. We see this everywhere. One day, you're not interested in somebody, and then what happens? You're interested. Enchantment. Maybe you're so enchanted that you get married to that someone, only to three, four, five years later find yourself in marriage counseling thinking, I no longer want to be married to this person. What happened there? Disenchantment. And yet, as so many of us can testify, if you slow down and start looking again for beauty in your beloved, you will soon be re-enchanted, which doesn't only recover initial enchantment, it brings you to a new level. Why am I talking about this? Because many of us were once enchanted with Jesus. But after some unanswered prayers, maybe lack of progress against certain sins, maybe just the sheer mundanity of it all, this December you find yourself, if you're honest, a bit disenchanted. Life with Jesus has lost its wonder and joy and adventure and optimism that it once possessed. And if that's you, listen, like it's me, Christmas is the annual invitation to be re-enchanted with God. You see, one of the reasons we're so disenchanted is because we're a forgetful people, and therefore we are prone to forget who exactly is lying in the manger. And so for the next few weekends, moving towards Christmas morning, we're going to look at non-traditional passages in hope that the Spirit will re-enchant us with the baby born in Bethlehem. Guys, God brought you here this morning to re-enchant your heart with Jesus. Open up your Bibles to 1 Kings 18. 
First Kings 18 is one of the most epic passages in the Old Testament. If you were expecting a snooze fest this morning, you're not going to get one. First Kings 18, let me set the scene. It's about a hundred years after King David. Now King Ahab is king, and he's arguably one of the most, if not the most, wicked king in all of Israel's history. His wife is Jezebel, and they've been hunting the prophets of Yahweh. You see, Ahab and Jezebel were passionate, devoted worshipers of Baal. And tragically, at this point in 1 Kings, so are most of God's people. Little context, Baal, according to 1 Corinthians 10.20, was a demon or demons. And he was thought of as the sky god or the storm god who brought fertility both to the ground, produced crops, and to the family, produced children. Worshiping Baal often included orgies, sometimes child sacrifice, and the intent was to provoke Baal to send children and to send rain. So Elijah sees this happening, and Elijah's the primary prophet of the day, and so God tells him, prophesy a drought. And according to the word of Elijah, at this point in 1 Kings, it hasn't rained for not one year, not two years, not three years, three and a half years, not a single drop. Let's pick up the story, 1 Kings 18, beginning in verse 17. If you're there, say there. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, It's you, you troubler of Israel. Isn't that how the world looks at Bible-believing Christians? Troublers? Verse 18, And Elijah answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Esherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab and Jezebel have been hunting Elijah for three and a half years. They're finally face to face with the prophet. And the prophet says, you want me? Come get me. Meet me at Mount Carmel and bring all your prophets. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Just imagine the scene. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. And the people, cowardly as they were, did not answer him a word. The central question of this text is, how long will you go limping between different opinions about God? The word translated limping is an exceptionally unique word. It could be translated falter, um, dance, hop. One commentator says it carries the metaphor of birds hopping from one branch to the next, not knowing on which to settle. So God, through the prophet Elijah, asks his people, and because God's word is living and active, amen, he's asking us today, 
How long will you go limping between your idols and your God? Now, an idol is anyone or anything that you go to to get what only God can give. Only God can give rain. They're going to Baal. Only God can give security. We're going to money. Only God can give satisfaction. We're going to sex. Only God can give fulfillment. We're asking our career to. Only God can give comfort. And when you're asking food or clothes or weed or fill in the blank, an idol is whatever we ask to give us what only God can give us. And the question God is asking them and is asking you is how long? How long will you go limping between one and the other, doing the dance? On Sunday, all I need is Jesus. I love Jesus. I have Jesus. But by Monday, I need affirmation from my job. Right? Come to church. All I need, Jesus loves me. This is all I need. By Sunday night, I need affirmation from my spouse or from my boyfriend or from my girlfriend. You know, Jesus, he's what excites me. He's what thrills me. He's everything. Not even before lunch. I need likes on Instagram. How long are we doing this thing? Dancing, jumping from God to idols. You know what the most insidious idol is? Religion. Religion is when we ask a system about God to give us what only God can give us. Most churches in America are filled with people who are going to Christianity to give what only Christ himself can give. It's about precepts. It's about principles. It's not about the person of Jesus. It's gumball Christianity. I'll do my dance. I'll put in my Bible reading and my purity and my church going, and I'll get back forgiveness, encouragement, heaven, At the center of religious Christianity is principles and precepts. At the center of true Christianity is a person, the triune God, Yahweh. Elijah is not confronting just generic, general idolatry. He's confronting false religion. And so God is asking through him, how long are you doing the dance? How long will you go limping between me and religion? Because all religion outside of me is false religion. It's demonic. You know, just confession, guys. I feel like I come every single weekend to church and I am reacquainted with the real Jesus who offers free grace for the true gospel And I can't make it to dinner without jumping back to the branch of religion, of performance mentality. I just keep doing the dance. I keep jumping and limping in between. Can anyone relate to that? Yeah. Well, God brought you to church today to say, how long are we doing that dance? How long will you keep jumping from me to religion, from grace to law, from Jesus to any other counterfeit Savior? Verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, 
am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Is everyone everyone tracking what's happening? Elijah says, okay, let's take two bulls. I'll give you the advantage. You pick the one first, I'll take the other. And we're going to offer these to God. We're going to cut them up, put them on wood, and don't set any fire to them. You call upon the name of Baal to send fire. I'll call upon the name of Yahweh to send fire. And whichever God actually sends fire from heaven, he's the one true God. And and this should be right up Baal's alley because remember, he's the storm God. If you Google ancient depictions of Baal, he's going to be holding a lightning bolt because he sends fire and lightning from heaven, so they thought. So this is like his thing. This is his specialty. This should be right up Baal's alley. Verse 25. Now Elijah turns his attention from God's people to the 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. The most repeated word in this chapter is answer us. Circle it every time you see it. Answer us. Notice this first. They call from morning until noon. We can deduce from this, false worship is exhausting. Idolatry is exhausting. Our idols don't work for us. We must work for them. The onus is on you to lose the weight. The onus is on you to get the raise, to build the followers, to present the image. And it's why we're so dang tired all the time. How you doing? Oh man, I'm I'm busy and I'm tired. Why are you tired? Because we're idolaters and living for our idols is exhausting. Let's just cut it how it is. But the prophets of Baal aren't just generic idolaters. They're they're prophets. They're religious. They're, They're zealots. And so at a deeper level, we see that they're dancing from morning until noon. We can deduce religion is exhausting. In fact, it uses the same language as the world. Do better, try harder. We just baptize the end of the sentence with, for Jesus. Now see it at the end of verse 26. But there was no voice and no one answered. So did they, did they just stop? All right, I guess Baal's not answering today. No, keep, keep reading. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Idolatry and religion requires redoubled efforts. If you you didn't get what you're looking for, keep trying. Keep working. Keep doing the song and dance. It's going to work eventually, so just keep going after it, man. Verse 27. And at noon, I love this so much, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's God. Either he's musing 
or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be wakened. Guys, how awesome is that? You know, I I thank God for commentators. The church needs nerds to tell us about grammatical context and historical context, but most commentators aren't great at picking up the humor. One commentator writes regarding verse 27, the word translated relieving himself is a euphemism for bodily elimination. I shall repeat it only in Latin because it's too coarse to be put in English. Come on, missed it. Guys, don't be more serious than the Bible. God wants us to laugh at this. This is supposed to be funny. The prophets of Baal are crying out, Oh, Baal, please answer us. And at this point, it's going on like four hours, five hours, six hours. And so Elijah, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, starts talking trash from the sidelines. He's like, hey, guys, I I don't think Baal hears you. Cry out loud. Actually, maybe try articulating it a little clearer. Say, answer us. Try that. Maybe, maybe he's going to the bathroom. I bet he'll be back in a few minutes. And then minutes pass, and man, what did he eat last night? Maybe, maybe he's on a journey. Did, did anybody get the out-of-office email? Did anybody get, I'll check my email. Maybe he's, out, maybe he's out of office. Still nothing. Hours later, still nothing. Must be sleeping. Just try louder. You gotta, you gotta wake him up, you know? He's talking trash and he's in no position to be doing this. He is outnumbered. Guys, Elijah is standing there all by himself. He's surrounded by 450 prophets of Baal who want him dead, 400 prophets of Asherah who want him dead, King Ahab who wants him dead, all of Israel who I think wouldn't mind seeing him be taken care of. If I were him, I'm trying to stay small in this moment. I'm going to try to fly under the radar. Maybe people will be distracted by all the commotion, and I'll be able to sneak out the back. Not Elijah. Elijah is so confident in the outcome that he's just thoroughly enjoying the process. That's a way to follow Jesus, isn't it? Verse 28. The passage now goes from funny to downright sad. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. The practice of cutting themselves was meant to arouse Baal's pity, provoking him to respond. So they're trying this for hours on end, and someone's like, guys, guys, I don't think Baal cares about the blood of the bull. You know what? I I bet he's just been waiting for our blood. I think he just wants us to put some skin in the game. So I'll go first, give me a lance, and they start cutting themselves. Idolatry and religion requires blood. It's so easy to read verse 28 and condescendedly think, what primitive people? What what, what primitive people cutting yourself for your God, and yet how many today sacrifice their families for career advancement? How many today sacrifice their children for their need of approval being met on social media? I just read an article of a trauma counselor who's seen more and more children, and she said the number one thing that children wish was different at their homes was that their parents would get off their phones. 
our addictions, our idols are destroying not only ourselves, but everyone we love around us. Whether it's money or career or our image, whatever we get out of bed for that's not named Jesus, that will eventually require your life. Because like the prophets of Baal, you're going to do the dance and it's not going to answer. Then you're going to cry out louder and it's still not going to answer. Then you're going to switch up the strategy and it's still not going to answer. And eventually you're going to come to the place to say, okay, I just, need to give, I just need to go all in now. I need to give it all my time, all my energy, all of me, and that will be the death of your wild and precious life. Make no mistake, our idols will require blood. Now they don't lead with that. Of course not. But after they fail to deliver what we're asking them to give us, the lie that you and I will believe is that we just need to put more skin into the game. I just need to give it more time, more energy, more focus. False gods require nothing less than all your life. And again, the most excruciating form of this is religion. When are you going to get serious? When are you going to like really buckle down? Make God the main thing. When are you going to get some skin in the game? Oh, I'll love you. I'll answer your prayers, but not until you get serious about fighting your sin and mortifying your flesh. I want focus. I want effort. I want everything. I want blood. Satan is a liar. Because God does invite us to kill our sin, but not with our blood. With his I hope you know this, your sins, all of them, including the ones that cling so tightly this morning, you have been freed from their punishment, you are being freed from their power, and you will soon be free from their presence. Not because you finally put skin in the game, but because he did. But the idolaters in 1 Kings 18, they have no sense of grace, so they're just left to performance. Verse 29, and as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. One of the reasons God in his sovereign love brought you to church today is to show you where your idolatrous pursuit ends. The final stop, the end of the line, the journey's end of living for anything outside of Jesus is, verse 29, there will be no voice, no one will answer, no one will pay attention. Translation, the thing you're hoping for is not going to deliver. The success that you're going after that you think is going to satisfy your heart will not. Being known by enough people to make your little life feel significant, you're never going to get it. Being 10 pounds lighter to make you feel finally comfortable in your skin, you're going to never feel comfortable in your skin. Because this is why celebrities who have everything you're going after, the money, the fame, the body, the designer life, still overdose or blow their brains out. 
You had everything. Why? Because there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Verse 29 is where idolatry ends and it's where religion ends also. If the center of your Christianity is about anything other than felt intimacy with the real risen Jesus, then you will look at verse 29 and if you're honest, say, my personal experience is not far from the prophets of Baal. There has been no voice. No one has answered. It doesn't seem like anyone's paying attention. False religion and false Christianity diverge into the same experience. After you've given everything, all your energy, all your best efforts, you've sacrificed everything there is to sacrifice, here's what you will experience. Nothing at all. Just feel the weight of this, guys. They've tried everything. You get to the moment. Nothing happens. Elijah's turn. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. What grace. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Notice, Elijah isn't constructing something new. He's repairing something old. This is an aside, but to see the power of God, we don't need to go do new things. We need to go back to old things. We just had a whole series on that. The word for this is revival. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, underline this, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. Verse 33. And he put the wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with the water. So not only does Elijah talk trash all the way until it's his turn, now it is his turn and his first move is, Douse it with water. Keep more water. More water. I want to see it submerged. Why does God do this? Because God loves to be disadvantaged. Before Joseph is raised to essentially vice president of Egypt, God puts him where? In prison. Last week, Hunter reminded us, before Gideon defeats the Midianites, God shrinks the army of 32,000 down to 300 to go fight 120,000. Before Daniel is raised to leadership in Babylon, God puts him in a lion's den. Before Jesus is raised as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God puts him on a cross. Why? Because God's glory is displayed in the disadvantage. 
So Elijah soaks the sacrifice. Verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, how different this is than what the prophets were doing. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things, watch this, at your word. So the showdown, the water, I would say even the trash talk, apparently it was all God's idea. He did it all according to his word. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, Answer me that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. The central verse of this whole event is verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. How long did Elijah's prayer take? I read it slow. Maybe 20 seconds to pray? 30 seconds? Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Did you catch the theological significance of verse 38? This is hugely significant. To contrast himself from Baal... God sends down fire so fierce that it consumes not just the bull, not just the wood, not just the water, but the stones. What do the stones represent? We were told, verse 31, the 12 stones represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So what we're supposed to see here is over there is religion. You've got an altar, a bull, limping, bleeding people doing the dance of religion. And over here, the bull is gone. The wood is gone. The water is gone. The dust is gone. And the 12 stones are gone. So that all that remains is God and God alone. Verse 39. This is what I'm praying happens at church this morning. And when all the people saw it, They fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. They seized them. Elijah brought them down to the book Kishon and slaughtered them there. When the people saw God send down fire, they knew He's God. When the people saw that Yahweh actually answers, they knew he is God. So you might be thinking, bro, how is this a Christmas sermon? All right. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus said the entire Old Testament is about him. And Spurgeon said just how from every little village and tiny hamlet in England, there's a road leading to London. So does every text in the Old Testament. There's a road leading to Jesus. In verse 37, if that's the central verse of this chapter, which it is, look at it again. Answer me, Yahweh. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Okay, I get that. Send down the fire, and we're all going to know that Yahweh is the one true God. 
But look at the next part. And that you have turned their hearts back. There's a purpose statement of the fire. Apparently, God sending fire down from heaven is not just to display his power. Apparently, it's a rescue mission. God is saying, when they see what I send down, their hearts will turn back. There's an almost identical prayer to verse 37 in the New Testament. Jesus himself prays it right outside of Lazarus' tomb. Instead of praying, answer me, Jesus prays, John eleven forty one. 41, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me, that their hearts may be turned back. You see, guys, in verse 38, God sends down fire to consume the animal, the wood, the dust, and even the 12 stones of Israel. Why? Because his glory is displayed when all that remains is God and God alone. And 800 years later, the same God sends down not a spark, but his son. And there's an animal and there's some wood and he's lying in the dust. But what's not there is the 12 tribes of Israel. God sends down from heaven his son to Bethlehem because his glory is displayed when all that remains is God and God alone. And what God wants us to see this morning is that he is God, the only God who answers from heaven, who actually answers. Only Yahweh delivers what we're asking our idols and our religion to deliver. The prophets of Baal want fire and they learn in 1 Kings 18, only God gives fire. You and I want satisfaction and we learn at Bethlehem, Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. We want pleasure. I want pleasure. And we learn in Psalm 1611, in his presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our entire society is built around finding love, true love, and extending life as long as possible by eating a lot of kale and a lot of Botox. And the message of Christmas in a single verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, here it is, should not perish, but have eternal life. Loved one, you can have everything your heart is searching for, but you can have none of it in the people, places, and things you're searching. Only God gives fire. Only God can satisfy your heart. 
Only God can give you true fulfillment. Only God can give you true love and lasting pleasure and life and life to the full. Who is the baby lion in the manger? He is the God who actually answers. God wants us to look at 1 Kings 18 and say, wow, God answers from heaven. And then he wants us to look at Bethlehem and say, wow, God answers from heaven. And verse 37 says, seeing God send fire down is supposed to turn our hearts back. So what should seeing God send his son down do? Because in Jesus, we see not only God's power, we can see that in 1 Kings 18. At Bethlehem, we can see God's grace. You see, the baby is coming not to consume the offering. He's here to be the offering and to be consumed. On the cross, God's wrath will come down from heaven and consume the offering that's on the wood. And death will have won. And then God will say, do it again. And then on the third day, he'll say, do it again. And after three days, the stone will be done away with. And there will be no more offering, no more wood, no more water or dust. All that will be remaining is God and God alone. 